And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Katie Couric is a historic figure in American broadcast journalism. She was the first uh, woman to anchor uh, the evening news at, uh, at CBS. She was a towering figure in morning television uh, for 15 years as the co-host of the uh, Today Show. She did um, consequential award-winning reporting and uh, impactful interviews like the one with Sarah Palin in 2008 that uh, really influenced uh, the 2008 presidential race. And now she's the global anchor uh, for Yahoo. But beyond that, uh, as someone who lost her husband and her sister uh, to cancer, Katie has become a huge force in raising people's awareness uh, about cancer, testing, uh, and has saved countless lives. I sat down and talked with her about all of that the other day. Katie Couric, welcome. Welcome to your own home. I know. Here we are at my kitchen table. This is so podcast of is. us, David. This, this, it is. It Having is. a cup of joe, you got a everybody, little water. Everybody can picture it in their mind's eye. Well, should we describe what my kitchen looks like for people? It is, uh, it is what I would imagine Donald Trump's kitchen is like. <laughs> No, there's no gold-plated anything in this kitchen. <laughs> but it's, it's sort of, it's I tried to have nice. this, well, tasteful. I tried to have this kind of Tuscan idea. Yeah. And uh, we're sitting, I'm sitting on a banquette because, you know, I moved here right after Jay died. I had two little kids. And so I wanted to make this place a really warm, nurturing place for children, especially given what we had been through right. as, fam- as a family. And so... Um, you know, I've really we've had a lot of very fun dinners sitting at this table I bet. when my girls were growing up, and I bet. Um, yeah, it's it, this is this has been a special apartment for me, but I'm moving soon. Yeah, so is it hard? Is that hard? A little bit, you know. I mean, I think I'm sort of in a new chapter. I got married uh, almost two years ago, yes. and um, I'm a bit of a pack rat and a bit of a hot mess and I think my husband wanted to start fresh in a new apartment that we could both share obviously plenty of room for my girls when Mm -hmm. they come home they're both in California but you know I think to be in a new space is kind of turning over a page which is also nice and exciting I want to ask you about a bunch of pages that you've turned (laughs) um and uh, but the, f- the first thing that occurred to me when I was sort of getting ready to talk to you was that you're not a first generation journalist, right? Your dad was uh, in journalism. Is is that why you got interested in journalism? Is were you always bound that way? <clears throat> I think so. I mean, I think for I got interested for a couple of reasons. First of all, my dad was a brilliant man. He was a real Renaissance man. He could talk fluently about almost any subject. And uh, so I grew up in a house where where my father, I think, nurtured us to all have curiosity and ambition. My mom, too, was quite ambitious for us. I always say that she would have been, you know, running a big financial services company because she was very smart, but she was of a generation where women really didn't work outside the home. Um, she volunteered for Planned Parenthood. I think she worked in the gift department of Lord and Taylor, but she was very clever and savvy. And I remember in the early eighties, she bought a lot of stock in Trojan because of the AIDS crisis, but that was the kind of person she was. She How'd was she just, do? <laughs> I think she did pretty well. And, uh, but my father, I think encouraged me to write um, I was always a fairly quick, proficient writer. And why didn't you go into print? Why'd you go well, into you know, broadcast I actually, journalism? I actually did an interview with the Washington Post to get a, I think, an entry level job, and I didn't get it. And I worked at radio stations while I was in college, at, um, different radio stations every year. And I, I think I thought, well, television would be interesting. Um, I. It was a time in 1979 where there were a lot of opportunities or starting to be, or at least I foresaw a lot of opportunities for women in that business. And I thought it was, quite frankly, more lucrative. 
Mm-hmm. My dad worked for United Press. He worked for the Atlanta Constitution. Right. And I think he had to get out of journalism because it was very hard to support a family of four on that a was newspaper one of the man's reasons I salary. Got out of journalism yeah. as well. Yeah. Which, you know, and then he went into public relations. But I think his heart was always in journalism. And um, I saw that. And I thought, you know, I want to. I want to make more money than that. I don't want to have to get out of doing something I love because it didn't pay well enough. And you, you, you did the traditional thing. You went from from uh, market to market and worked your way up. Somewhat. I mean, I started at ABC News in Washington right out of college uh, because it was in it was in Washington. I thought, well, let me at least learn more about this business and be exposed to it. So I worked there for a year, and then CNN was starting. A year after I was at ABC, George Watson, who'd been the deputy bureau chief at ABC, had been tapped to go to CNN. And I'll never forget telling Carl, Carl Bernstein, who was the Washington bureau chief of ABC at the time, that I was going to CNN uh, from ABC News, which he could not believe. And he said, why would you want to go to CNN. I think Carl's an occasional contributor to CNN. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He said, well, things have changed a lot since 1980. But I said, he said, that's like going to the minor leagues compared to the major leagues. And I remember, I don't know where I had the wherewithal to make this response, because usually you think of it 30 minutes later. But I said, yes, Mr. Bernstein, but I think I need to learn how to play baseball first. Oh, that's a good response. Yeah, because I felt like I needed to learn the skills. And at ABC... It was very bureaucratic. You know, I couldn't ever expand my role other than, I mean, maybe in years, but it would have taken years. So I wanted to work in a shop that didn't have unions, that allowed you to do pretty much anything, and that had so much more opportunity. And you went down to Miami at one point, too, right? I did. After I was with CNN for four years as a producer, and then I did some on-air work, I went down to Miami because... Again, I think when you go into a place at a certain a position, they don't necessarily envision you doing anything else. So I went there as an associate. I, I was at CNN as an assignment editor. Then I moved to Atlanta to be an associate producer and a producer. And because I worked with this wonderful couple named Don Farmer and Chris Curl, who did a noon to two show, they gave me the opportunity to do some stories, to get on air and do some reporting and really helped me because I had, I had met Don at ABC when I was a desk assistant, and he was a correspondent for 2020. And I went up to his office as a you know 22-year-old desk assistant, and I said, hey, can I come in? I have some story ideas for you for 2020. Wow. And I think he was actually, I think he was impressed. That was that, bold. Huh? That was bold. Well, bold, but also, why not? I, they were good story right, ideas. Right. <laughs> One was on comp, uh, a com, an institute for compulsive gamblers in Pikesville, Maryland. And uh, so I People said... People actually went to learn to be compulsive gamblers? <laughs> to learn not to be oh, compulsive gamblers. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I met Don there, and of course, he remembered me, and he was somebody who was happy to take take me under his wing. And so that's when I started doing more reporting. But... I still couldn't kind of get over that 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 threshold of being seen as a quote-unquote correspondent. So when I asked to be a correspondent, I was told I could go into the writer's pool or I could do another job by a guy named Ed Turner who made some very sexist remarks, which we can discuss in a moment if yes. you'd like to. Yes. Um, and I realized I was never going to be seen as anything but kind of a low, lower-level producer at CNN. And at the, at the time, a, a guy named Al Buck from Miami, from WTVJ, which was quite a storied local station in Miami, reached out to me and said, I'm interested in hiring you. Would you like to come to Miami? So I did. And what did you learn when you, when you finally became an on-air uh, reporter? What did you learn? I, I can tell you from my experience that um, you know I did two and a half years on nights at the Chicago Tribune before I started covering politics. I, it was the most eye-opening experience of my life. I saw aspects of life that I never had seen before, and I learned how to be a reporter, uh, covering you know real human life kinds of stories. You know, most of them sad, because that's what happened from six to two thirty in the morning. But um, what was your experience like? Gosh, I mean that that's I had so many different experiences. It's hard to, I think 
wrap it up or sum it up into one neat package. Um, I learned the importance of relationships, you know, hitting the scene and being able to talk as many to as many people as you could. I learned how to write cohesively and quickly. I learned how to really, I think I, a lot of this was instinctual to me, um, just because I'm a naturally extremely curious person. I think that along Probably with the most my- most important thing a good journalist can be. Yeah, along with the ability to, I think, synthesize things and present them in a clear and understandable way. Um, so a lot of these things I think I knew how to do in my heart, but I had to get out there and actually do it. Yeah, uh, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours right. to become proficient in anything. What, what, you must have done uh, some a bunch of live stuff in that uh, role. That, that to me is sort of, that's the most, that's you're up there with uh, no net yeah. on a high wire. You know, um, I was, I, it took me a long time to p- feel super comfortable doing live reports because... Um, I would get nervous enough that I would forget things or I would be terrified about drawing a blank. So oftentimes, I pretty much wrote out everything I was going to say, memorized it, and then regurgitated it. I just worked better that way because I don't think at the time I had the self-confidence to be able to say, you know, here's what's going on. I mean, I think I could do that today and feel really good. But at the time, it was almost too, too scary and so I learned how to do live reporting, but it was sort of not not just standing there and talking. It was really collecting my thoughts, writing down phrases, referring to my notes, and doing it that way. So you know, so later in your life, so much of what you had to do was, in fact, uh, improv- improvisational, especially when big things were happening. Right. Um, but by then it was probably second nature to you. Yeah, it was. And, you know, I, we always, we had an expression on the Today Show called rehearse spontaneity because yes, a lot of it was, was spontaneous, but a lot of it, you know, I would always think about what was I, what was I going to be covering that day? What was I going to be talking about? How could I inject a little humor or levity in a situation? What, side of myself was I going to, um, you know, expose in the course of an interview if it was appropriate, if it was too much. So some of those uh, impromptu moments were actually products thought of thought. But, but yeah. when, uh, like, if a couple of planes hit the oh. World Trade Center, there's no prep- preparing for that. Absolutely That's pure not. instinct. That's pure instinct. It's like being the conductor of an orchestra with a million different instruments. Well, not a million, but dozens. Because you are listening to the control room, you're trying to find experts on the ground, you're figuring out, you know, you're really learning as you go along. And you're probably also processing your own feelings. Yes, that was a very, very, very um, stressful and traumatic thing to cover. Because, first of all, first and foremost, as an American, I was completely confused and terrified. I, I really thought the world was coming to an end. I just didn't understand it. Um, secondly, I'd been dating a guy who was flying from Boston to Los Angeles that morning. Mm. Thirdly, my parents live in Arlington, not too far from the Pentagon. But, you know, at the time, you just didn't know when it was going to end. You'd hear another plane, then you'd hear the Pentagon. Uh, Well, you know, my kids, of course, I was worried about them, but I felt like of all the people I was worried about, they were in school. They were were in school. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were, uh, I knew, taken care of. They had teachers. They had adult supervision. I had a wonderful nanny who herself was taking classes at Hunter. I sort of felt like, you know, a lot of parents ran and picked up their kids, and I felt like their school, surrounded by all those loving adults, was one of the safest places they could be. But all this is racing through your head while you're yeah. trying to uh, share this news with the with the country. I remember my hand, David, was shaking like a leaf hmm. during much of that those initial hours of that broadcast because it just, I think, nobody understood what was going on. 
You uh, just to backtrack a second. You uh, you came back to D.C. and you did local reporting there, and then you got hired by NBC, and then you were at the Pentagon. Yeah. So I after Miami, um, I decided that I I I didn't want to live in Miami my whole life. As much as I loved it, I really yeah, enjoyed Miami's my a, time in, in Miami. I, Miami's a, today in particular, it's such a vital interesting place. Well, it was back then, really. Yeah. You know, this was the era of Miami Vice. Yes. Um, it was a great town, unfortunately, for the wrong reasons to cover news because there was so much crime and immigration issues and, you know, the Crone Detention Center for, you know, there were a lot of Haitians. There were, all, I mean, it was very, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a lot happening. And, um, and I loved, I loved the multiculturalism of Miami. I thought it was really fun. I dated a cop. It was very, you know, very exciting. You took the time Miami Vice thing really seriously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess I did. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and then I decided I had an opportunity to work in Washington D.C., which is where I'm from. I'm from Arlington, Virginia, right, right across the Potomac River, right across Chain Bridge, and. Um, you know, I was interested in in doing more national stories, even though Miami stories were quite national mm-hmm. as well. So I went to Washington. I was a local news reporter, learned a lot there, too. I remember one of my first stories, to your point, about some of the sad stories you had to cover when you were working the night shift at the paper. I remember one of my first assignments is two young girls had been killed because a dump truck full of asphalt had dumped on Mm. their car and just too young i believe they were in high school oh my and i had to go to their one the parents house of one of the girls that's the worst and knock on the door and one thing that i learned that i think i i i saw repeated through my years at the today show is these parents really wanted to talk about their daughter and I remember them showing me pictures of her in scrapbooks and talking to me about it. Mm. And it was so devastating. And yet, in a weird way, and maybe this is my own rationalization, I think I felt that I was hopefully helping them in some weird way. Yeah. This was before you had kids. It, it would have been even more uh, oh, painful. Sure. Uh, but I, I remember the, the experience of actually calling people and... Uh, inadvertently being the one who told them that their loved one had been killed. We'd get a police report. The assumption was that the family had been notified. They hadn't been notified. And you're calling from the Chicago Tribune, and it's the worst. That that was the worst. But you're right. I think people do, in moments of grief, they want to share. And uh, walking that that line between being sensitive and not exploitative is is really, really hard. I always felt that it was important for people to feel that the life loss was validated in some way, that it mattered, that these people were here. And to be able to be a conduit to tell the story of this particular person who was loved so much or mattered so much, was validating in a weird way. So you were hired from your local reporting job by NBC, uh, and and as I mentioned earlier, you went to the Pentagon. Yeah, I was very lucky because Tim Russert, uh, NBC and WRC, which was a local station in Washington, were housed in the same building. I'm sure you've been there many I times. Have. Yes, I have. And on Nebraska Avenue. And Tim had seen me running around after Mayor Marion Barry. I think he's, uh, you know, doing various stories from a Pink Floyd concert to, (laughs) you know, some terrible crime to political coverage. And I think he saw me as somebody who was kind of scrappy and uh, aggressive. So I remember he called me down to his office, which was on the first floor. We were on the second Mm -hmm. floor and said, I'd like to talk to you about coming to the network. And I said... He was the bureau chief. He was the bureau chief and the moderator of Meet Meet the the Press. Press, And really just a hugely important figure in NBC. One of my favorite people of all time. Yeah. He he came out and did a, uh, as you did, a a benefit for my wife's uh, uh, Epilepsy Foundation cure. 
And he was uh, like the the Pied Piper to these uh, men and women with uh, with developmental disabilities. I mean, they just took to him. Um, and I'll never forget that. And uh, when he passed away, um, Tom Brokaw told me they were cleaning Tim's office and found a framed photo of him with the uh, residents of Misericordia, where my where my daughter lives. And it just, you know, it was moving. He's just a wonderful guy and a great, great newsman. I mean, just set a standard in Washington that I think is missed. I think that's today. never been reached again. And I think he had this unique ability to combine this everyman quality with um, sort of searingly um, precise questions and incredible preparation. Yeah, well, remember, it was a it was a rite of passage for a candidate to spend not 10 minutes, but half an hour, an hour. Uh, Barack Obama, in uh, in one of the, one of the last interviews that uh, Tim did, spent uh, an hour with him. Uh, I think it was before the Indiana primary in uh, 2008, um, and it was it was a test. I mean, it was a test. You were either you passed it or you failed it. If you failed it, it was almost disqualifying, right? Because Tim had that kind of stature and his questions were that good. But you, I, the reason I keep pushing the Pentagon thing is I'm wondering what it was like to be a young female reporter at the Pentagon in the late '80s. It was um, exciting. It was fun. I didn't have a strong military background, save for the, uh, save for my dad being in the Navy during World War II. Uh, my husband actually had been a Navy pilot and had left the Navy, uh, had gotten, gotten an honorable discharge and decided he didn't want to sort of serve on a carrier, but he, was in, he had trained as a Navy pilot in Pensacola. Um, I remember taking Jane's Defense Weekly manuals on our honeymoon in Italy and reading about it. You must have been a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, that's not the hardware I really wanted you to be focusing (laughs) on, but I'm bumped. So I'd study M1A1 tanks and F-16s and F-18As and, you know, because I really wanted to to be prepared. And... um, you know, I think people were very nice to me at the Pentagon. David Martin was kind yeah, of the larger-than-life correspondent yes. at CBS. Is, yeah. I remember uh, breaking a story, uh, getting a scoop, like maybe in my first month there. And David Martin was, you know, he's kind of cranky. He was made him a little crankier. But Fred Francis was sort of a great mentor. He was the senior Pentagon mm-hmm. correspondent. I was the deputy and I think it was hard because I think a lot of people at NBC didn't take me seriously. They wouldn't allow me to do a lot of serious coverage. And I had to really prove myself. Um, but I think I did. And, um, you know, it was it was a very interesting and exciting time. I had to work the corridors of the E-ring and really learn my way around the Pentagon. And, um you know, uh, Dick Cheney was Secretary of Defense at the time. Pete Williams was his spokesperson. Yes, I made a you know I made a lot of great um, contacts there and relationships. And, uh, and probably the knowledge that you gained there served you well. Yeah, as, you know, as events uh, occurred the later, the Iowa that you had to explosion, talk about. the invasion of Panama. You mm-hmm. know, I covered all these things, <clears throat> and I learned how official Washington worked, and obviously went to. Pentagon briefings, and um, I think it was quite valuable for me because later when I went and covered Operation Desert Storm right. for the Today Show and later Iraq and Afghanistan, and, um, you know, I, I felt like I had a good understanding of, of the military um, and world affairs, really. And then you, uh, uh, from there came the Today Show, this incredible 16-year... Yeah. Well, you know, I... I, I they contacted me. I think they, I think they wanted to move me into that role, but it was kind of a tenuous time. The show was mm-hmm. was was being challenged. Um, I think the transition from Jane to Deborah was handled pretty clumsily. And um, this seems I think to be a Deborah, recurring problem. Yeah, I think Deborah uh, was incre- is is an incredibly talented person. Deborah Norville. Yeah. She was in Chicago uh, yeah. early in her career. Talented, beautiful, not to be shallow, but really a beautiful girl at the time. Um, she's a woman now. 
and I guess was back then, but, um, you know, quite, quite gifted, as was Jane. But I think this whole idea of sticking Deborah on the couch with Bryant and Jane, people described it as like Bryant sitting with his wife and his girlfriend at the same time. <laughs> Just it's interesting, awkward. isn't it? This whole casting thing, it seems with these morning shows yeah. in particular, it really matters. And, you you know, we hear these recurring stories of, well, you know, they don't like the chemistry. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I've been asked a lot about this. Every time there's sort of a bungle transition, people come to me and say, you know, what's going on? And I do think they're unique in that this familial uh, feeling you get. You see people in a very, uh, you know, multidimensional way when they do those shows. You see them relaxed. You see them interacting. You see them being spontaneous. And right. sometimes it's not rehearsed. You see them handling all different kinds of stories, uh, you know, from what genes make you look better to uh, – you know, what happened in Oklahoma City when right. the Murrow building gets bombed. So I think as a result of that, people feel have this very intimate connection. And people used to come up to me and say, I feel like I really know you. Right. And I would say, because you do. You know, you've seen me. That's uh, because have who the baby. hell are you wouldn't have been the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> you've seen me have a baby. You've seen me lose my husband to cancer. Yes. You've seen me interview presidents. You've seen me interview toddlers you've seen me interview celebrities so you do kind of know me so as a result i think when these transitions happen people feel very proprietary towards these individuals and um you know they want to believe that sort of the happy family that is projected into the world is really true or they want to kind of feel that they are seeing some cracks in the happy veneer. I don't know and what it is. And how happy is the family? It depends on the family. I mean, we used to say, we're yeah, we're a family. We're like the Manson family. <laughs> we used to say that on the Today Show. But honestly, there was a lot of, um, you know, I think, I think everybody plays a role. And I think the dynamics can be tricky. I think um, I had a great experience on the Today Show. I mean, I, I'm very friendly you were with, with... You were with Brian Gummel, and then you were with, with Matt. Matt. I mean, I think Brian Lauer. and I, you know, Bryant was a very sort of alpha male. And um, I think sometimes it was hard to have a strong woman who wasn't necessarily going to be the second banana. Mm -hmm. um, so to manage that was sometimes tricky. Um I think it was interesting. Uh, then I think with Matt and me, even though I was the senior person, and I could have insisted, as Bryant did, that I opened every show and threw to every commercial, I, you know, I could have said to Matt, well, now it's my turn to introduce every show, to open it and throw to every commercial, because I have seniority. And, you know, I thought being equal partners meant a 50-50 division of labor. When I was offered the job at the Today Show initially, Bryant Gumbel was the anchor. And I said to Michael Gartner, the president of NBC News at the time, listen, I don't want to be relegated to the cooking segments and fashion. And, you know, I came from the Pentagon. I want mm. to cover serious news. In addition, I mean, I like those other things. They were fun. And I enjoyed that. How hard was that. it, by the way, to go back and forth between those? I don't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, not. it wasn't hard at all. I mean, for me, because I actually am interested in so many things, I think I have a lot of range in terms of the t the topics I enjoy covering. So for me, it was kind of like a welcome relief to do something super uber serious. And you never did it like, I, you know, we always had a commercial mm -hmm. in between or we were able to learn how to make these sort of seamless transitions. But just to finish the Brian story, I said to Michael Gartner, I do not, I want a 50-50 division of labor if I'm going to do this show, which I think was kind of ballsy for someone who was 32 years old at the time who's being offered this plum right. assignment that I never envisioned in a million years. And I remember him saying, well, how about 5149? And I said, I'll take it. So, yeah. you know, but, but I you think... Didn't, but you didn't specify whether you'd be 51 or 49. <laughs> well, I think I pretty much knew what Michael he was talking Gardner, about. Michael Gardner, by the way, went on to own the Cubs AAA team in... Des Moines, which seems like a great way to cap your your career. He's a he's a wonderful guy. He had a he had a 
His tenure was fairly fraught at NBC, but um, I always great really journalist. liked him. Really, really great smart, good yeah. journalist. Um, a little bit of a fish out of water, I think, In going TV. from print to television. Yeah. But um, but but then when when I uh, Matt moved into the chair, I thought let's just be equal partners. You know, isn't this what isn't this what it's all about? Mm-hmm. Equality, and that worked. Yeah. You uh, you talked about your husband. And all the whole country experienced this with you. Um, he had uh, he he had colon cancer. Um, do you obviously you do? How, how did you learn that? When did you do you remember exactly? Yeah, uh, the, of course, mm-hmm. like it was yesterday. Yeah, he had not been feeling great. He was had lost weight. Um. I remember seeing him like uh, wrapping a towel around him in the, sh- you know, getting out of the shower and thinking, God, he looks so thin. And he just hadn't been feeling great. He was tired. His stomach bothered him. And we just thought, you know, it's the pressure of traveling. He was covering the Timothy McVeigh case yes, for MSNBC. He was a legal was correspondent. Legal, legal commentator, yeah. Commentator, yes. yeah. Yeah. I guess correspondent, too. But, um, I remember, oh, God, you know those things, those moments in your life that you just will never forget every detail. I was in the Today Show, my dressing room, trying on some clothes that some people from The Gap had brought. I always like to wear, like, accessible clothes, you know, not huge designer clothes. And uh, and and I got this call. For, uh, we had an, an Irish nanny named Nula, and she said, Jay is bent over in the bathroom in excruciating pain. Um, I don't know what to do. And I said, oh, my God. Well, send him to my doctor, Tom Nash. You know, and like so many young 41-year-old men who played lacrosse, good shape, ate well for the most part, um, you know, he didn't have a doctor. He mm-hmm. had just moved to New York a little while before, after practicing law in D.C., and he just didn't want to be apart from us. We were going home on the weekends. And um, we went to Tom Nash, who I love, who's my internist, and he said, you know, we need to check you into the hospital. And I remember Dr. Nash saying, don't worry, it's not cancer. Hmm. I think he just he wanted to put our minds at ease. And shortly thereafter, um, a, a wonderful doctor named Mark Bachapin, who I started the Monaghan Center with at New York Hospital, came out and said, uh, you, you know, Jay has colon cancer, and uh, we're going to have to do a bowel resectioning. And then I think it was the next day, Dr. Nash brought me into one of those little corner patient consultation yes, I've rooms. Been in those rooms. And said... Uh, it's pretty bleak. It's all over his liver. Mm. Yeah. So that started a nine-month nightmare. How old were your girls at the time? Um, when Jay was diagnosed, uh, Ellie was five and Carrie was one. I remember, you know, my wife had breast cancer in her 40s, and she told me this. And I was driving when she called, and she was distraught. She didn't want to tell me until she knew and uh, um, all I could think about was my kids, and um, I, I, you know, I just she's so much the center of our lives, and um, so uh, I think of your story, and I think of your children, and and having to explain all this. Yeah, it was very hard, especially when your kids are that young. And I remember Ellie would say. Mommy, is Daddy going to get better? And I would say, I really hope so, but I don't know. Because I wanted to prepare her. I mean, I was praying, praying, and scouring every medical journal, calling pharmaceutical companies. I called Israel to talk to them about something that I had read. Some of my friends who were investigative reporters, or reporters anyway, or producers, were calling for me. And it was sort of all hands on deck. I called the NCI. I sent them Jay's slides. And I remember Steve Rosenberg, who's a very, very well-known, famous oncologist, 
I remember him calling me and he was so shaken. Mm. And he said, I had no idea it was this bad. Mm. So we had a hepatic artery pump put in, which pushed the chemo directly to Chase liver. It was too, the, the, the tumor burden was too big to have it resected or even you can have embolization where you can burn off tumors off a liver, but it was just all over his liver. Same thing happened to my sister two years later uh, with pancreatic yeah. cancer. A she gr- called a great, me. great woman, by the yeah. way. She was a, a state senator in, uh, in Virginia. Was running for lieutenant governor when Mark Warner was running for governor. Yes. And I know everyone used to say, oh, your sister's going to be the first female governor of Virginia. Yeah. She was just a remarkable, really remarkable person. And two years after Jay died, after a nine-month b- battle, my sister called me. I was had been on The Tonight Show, and I was in the green room and the publicist for the today show said your sister needs to talk to you and she said don't worry it's not she said your sister it's an emergency your sister needs to talk to you and i remember calling her right away my oldest sister emily and she said don't worry it's not about mom or dad because you know we always worried about my parents because my parents were getting older she said it's about me i have pancreatic cancer and it's all over my liver Mm. and it was just like how much can one person, one Well, family? you know, I started to, you know, wonder how, I mean, not to compare ourselves to the Kennedys at all, but you think about these families who endure kind of multiple tragedies, but this was, was two. Um, but it was so soon after and such young people. Jay was 42 when he died. Emily was 54. And uh, that's why I've, deve- you know, devoted so much of my... Life to, to really the, fighting well, cancer. I want to. I want to talk about that. How hard was it to go through this in public? I mean, everybody knew. You it, know, was, it was yeah that you were going through this, and everybody knew when you lost Jay. It was really, really, really hard because it was sort of at the height of my Today Show tenure, and <clears throat> you know. It was a very hard balancing act because I was a public person, but you know this was Jay's this was Jay's story to to do with what he wanted. You know this wasn't this wasn't this shouldn't have been fodder for newspapers, and I felt very protective of him. And I'll never forget one of the nurses at New York Hospital came in one day with a National Enquirer, saying, "Look." And it had like Katie's heartbreak, and it was all about Jay. And I thought, what is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. I thought that was like such bad judgment on her part. But you know, nobody, you know, tabloids especially, they they love stories about sickness and illness and and anchors. Yeah. I mean, and I think any public, I mean... No, you're a public figure. That's but I mean, part they write that stuff about into, Dolly Parton. You know, it's not right. just anchors. It's like... Uh, yeah. No, no, I understand. No, I understand. But it's just you're in the public eye and there's no there, there's no trespass that is is going to be... Um, uh, that isn't within bounds. But um, you took this and you made something good out of something horrible... Uh, you you had a colonoscopy on national television that hasn't been done before or since by any major television figure. I think Doctor Oz got one. <laughs> but I uh, started a trend. Maybe you, you could do a podcast where you got a colonoscopy. Yeah, it, it, it may be less jarring on a podcast. <laughs> I was going to say you, you don't have the visual. <laughs> let's just stipulate, but um, but the rea- the re- result of it was you've saved lives. You you what you did really made a difference and saved lives uh and i don't it's not nothing that doesn't bring your husband back or your sister back or but uh more people went and got got checked there was a 20 percent increase in colonoscopies after uh, my awareness efforts and they called it the university of michigan the Couric effect which was you know really incredibly gratifying um there was a recent article in the journal of in jama about uh about the decrease in colon cancer being not simply about screening which i have to read more carefully but i do believe that 
you know, a word that people couldn't even pronounce, much less do, colonoscopy, um, became part of the vernacular, and people started talking to their doctors about it. It raised consciousness among the medical medical profession as well. You know, I remember speaking to to uh, OBGYNs because women go there regularly to mm-hmm. in, to to really impress upon them the importance of talking to their you female patients. You promoted mammograms as well. Yeah, I mean, I did that to a much lesser extent. But, um, you know, it was very tricky. The camera angles, let's just say, for both procedures <laughs> yes. had to be carefully monitored, yes, David. Yes, 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 But, you know, one thing I just want to go back to really quick, briefly, is, you know, yes, the way Jay's illness was covered was very unsettling. And But the support I got from people who are watching the show yeah, I'm, was, I'm sure. was remarkable. The, the love and sympathy and tenderness and care that I actually felt well, it goes from the back audience. to what we were talking yeah. about before because people sort of view that that group that they wake up to uh, with every morning well I think you, they you, you know you become their de facto friends in right. a, in the nicest possible way right. like I loved I love feeling that and and I miss that in terms of kind of this this audience that shares with you all kinds of different things. And I had huge boxes of sympathy I cards that were written from people from all over the world. They were so kind and caring. It took the time. This is when people actually wrote letters and sent cards to send them my way and books and um, just, you know, paintings and just beautiful expressions of sympathy. And so I felt very, I, I just felt very honored and 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 very supported. So I don't want to no no I, I, to get I, the, I, the, I totally the impression. Un, totally understand that. So you left all that. You left a pretty good gig there, uh, and you went and you 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 made you made history uh, as the first uh, anchor of a of a network news broadcast at CBS. What made you leave the comfort of the job you had to you do? Know, I think I had been there 15 years, and I felt like that was a good amount of time. Um, I felt the Today Show was kind of getting away from more serious news, and um, and 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 I also felt that you know I'd kind of done everything I could do. I'd covered eight Olympics. I had um, covered 9/11, Oklahoma City, so mm-hmm. many different stories. I think probably the lighter segments were feeling a little repetitive for me. Like how many times can you do a story on, you know, how to make your teeth whiter or something like that. So I think I, I, you know, in 15 years is a long time. It really wasn't the hours. Les Moonves approached me and said, you know, we really want to change up the CBS Evening News. And he really courted me pretty aggressively. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, this is a great opportunity to have a woman do an evening newscast by herself, confidently and competently. And, you know, I was all for a new challenge. Um, and NBC was great. They really tried to keep me and Jeff Zucker and Jeff Immelt and all the other Jeffs over there, you know, said, you know, made it very appealing for me to stay. But I thought, well, you know, I'm going to try this new thing. Do you think you were... Uh well, first of all, on the becoming the first woman, you sat in the chair that Walter Cronkite once sat in, and then Dan Rather. But, uh, but you know, Cronkite was sort of the he was sort of if you looked up anchor in the dictionary, you'd right. see Walter Cronkite, and it was sort of the vo- voice of God, right, kind of thing. How difficult was it to fill uh, that role? It seems to me there's been a transition away from the voice of God, type. right. Anchor, but for a woman to come into that role, um, how, how difficult was that? How challenging? I mean, there were various challenging aspects of the job and of the organization. I think, sort of having that role per se. I mean, I I realized the extraordinary history behind that. I had dinner with Walter Cronkite before I took the job. Um, and talk well, they really did put it. the full court press on you, huh? Well, this was after I had accepted. I he see. was the kindest person, David. He was so nice. He was quite deaf. And of all places, we 
we went to the Four Seasons pool room where there's a fountain. And I note to self, when you're having dinner with someone who's hard of hearing, don't go, don't go to a place with a That's fountain. That's and a useful I, tip for and, all our listeners. Yes, and exactly. <laughs> and his dinner companion, who's a lovely person, uh, was basically, Walter, she's asking this. <laughs> so it was very kind of a very So everybody funny, in the whole room could purchase It was slightly a, a slightly <laughs> Emily Latella situation, right? Is that what her name was on yes, SNL? Yes, Emily Latella, yes. But anyway, um, but he, he was so nice. He said, you know, Katie, I was criticized from both sides. You know, I got grief, you know, because he was quite a courageous newscaster when you think about yes. speaking out against Vietnam and some he of the things that he did. He was probably the single biggest uh, voice when he, when he, you know, Johnson recognized when Walter Cronkite turned on him on the war. Right. That, that, he said, that, we lost Walter, we've right, lost the country. Right. But, you know, you know, you have to remember, too, that he was followed by Dan Rather, and that was sort of a a very tumultuous chapter yes. in the history of that news division. So it wasn't as if I was stepping in right after right. Walter. Right. And I think Dan Rather is a terrific journalist in many ways, but you know, that was that was pretty problematic mm -hmm. for him and sort of the way that was handled and if he was a victim of corporate, you know, pressure, who knows. But um but anyway, so I think I, I appreciate and understood the import of that role, but I also, you know, I felt pretty confident that I could fill it, um, and I think Les Moonves felt confident. I think he wanted to make it a little less, I think, you know, a little less voice of God, a little more accessible. A little I think more he connecting. Wanted, a little more connected and just um, a little less formulaic. So those were kind of, when, when we were talking to each other in the courtship, those were the, that was the messaging I was getting. So Katie, you, you, you had uh, five years as, as the anchor there, and you did lots of great stories, interesting interviews, but we're in an election season now. Perhaps no interview you did was more impactful on events than your interview with Sarah Palin uh, after she was uh, after she was selected as vice president. Uh, talk about that, how you prepared for that, and what you were thinking as you were speaking to her, because this turned out to be kind of devastating for her. Well, you know, I think that <clears throat> she was still relatively new on the political scene. She had given that incredibly dynamic speech at the convention. And I think if you'll recall, I think uh, your guy was, I wouldn't say flatlining, but things were feeling a bit stalled I for him there, in yes. that fall. I, I, I was there. Yeah, no, right, she no, gave, I know. She gave McCain a little bit of a boost for, for several weeks. In fact, we were meeting to talk about this on September 14th of... 2008, the next day Lehman Brothers collapsed, and that sort of changed the trajectory of things. But the race was very narrow in those at that first point. few weeks. Yeah, she, in she, made a, she helped him. She was sort of the, the fresh face, and I think people were Drawing quite enamored crowds, yeah. of her after you know, the, the lipstick line. And her mm -hmm. speech was good, I think, at the convention. It was. It was unconventional. And uh, and she seemed like a fascinating new figure who had just kind of exploded onto the scene. And she had done a few interviews. She had done an interview with um, Charlie Gibson. She had done another interview with Sean Hannity. Um, and so I, I really wanted to do an interview with Sarah Palin because I wanted to understand what made her tick. I wanted to really just have a clearer idea of where she would lead the country politically her background. And so I prepared for probably, gosh, a week intensely for probably three days. And I really, um, really tried to fashion questions that would dig beneath the surface. And I mean, it was a very complicated time. She had just met at the United Nations with a lot of world leaders. There was a lot going on domestically. So I talked to a number of people from Richard Haas to Sam Nunn, Madeleine Albright, some other people, and said, you know, 
what are the areas you'd like to talk to her about? Kind of got some guidance from from different people. And Madeline Albright said, you know, she's kind of a uh, a blank slate at this point, so people just don't know that much about her. I my biggest piece of advice is just let her talk, and I think that was incredibly valuable because I think just naturally our the way we converse, you kind of fill dead air, right? Because it feels awkward and uncomfortable, and you want to make sure that you're if she's not talking, somebody's talking, right? And I remember thinking, I'm just going to when I ask a question, I'm just not going to interrupt her. I'm not going to sort of try to help guide her in any way. I'm just going to let her kind of say what she thinks so we could make a fair assessment. And so every question I asked, I wanted to to see what her accumulated knowledge and ability to be a critical thinker uh, was. And so we came up with all sorts of questions about Iran and nuclear weapons. We asked her about taxes. We asked uh, Brian Goldsmith, who is yes. a, a colleague of mine now at Yahoo, who worked with me at CBS, who's just uh, has just a great political mind. Guy, yeah. um, I always say that he got he got grounded in high school for sneaking out of his bedroom to watch C-SPAN. <laughs> That's how big a nerd he is. <laughs> and so Brian and I worked really That's hard together. That's probably not a story you should share. <laughs> oh, I've shared Brian it so said, many times. He, yes. he knows it. He thinks it's funny and he laughs. But uh, I, um, anyway, so, so that's what we did. And we did the first interview in a hotel uh, near the United Nations to talk about world leaders. And then this, I think it, I, I don't think she performed very well. And so I was worried that the second interview that we had scheduled that they had committed to in Ohio was going to be canceled. But this was when there was a lot of upheaval in the campaign. I mean, if you just watch Game Change, you kind yes. of get a sense of what was going on. And Steve Schmidt said, no, you know, we promised you this interview. We're going to do it. And so um, we did it. And ironically, that one walk and talk question where I was simply getting B-roll and trying to ascertain what made her feel so passionately and sort of to be so steadfast in some of her positions, I wanted to know where that comes from. You know, where, how are you shaped? What do you read? And, you know, um, and, and how she keeps herself abreast of all the issues. So that's why I asked the famous, you know, what, I can't, I can't uh, quote what it exactly. And- what 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 magazines and newspapers do you read on a day, on a regular basis that have helped shape your worldview? I didn't know if it was going to be William F. Buckley. I thought maybe the Bible had a big influence mm-hmm. on the way she saw things, or um, you know, who knows? And I think she was getting pretty aggravated by me at that point, and that's when she said everything and anything. And I asked, I pressed her and said, could you be more specific? And I've always thought, I wonder how she wished she had answered that question. I would have answered if I had been running, I would have said I read every newspaper in Alaska because those are my constituents and I need to really understand every issue that's going on in Alaska. Then of course I read every national newspaper and I'm just I'm constantly googling things because I have I I love to learn. I'm sure that's what she meant to say. <laughs> the um, uh, but I felt bad you, because she you, was so angry about that. By the way, you know, and it was very interesting, David, because right after that, everyone thought the questions were fair. Democrats, Republicans, nobody said that those were gotcha questions well, or that was a cheap a shot basic question but but well i mean all of them yeah i mean and they were some hard questions there by the way you know they were very thoughtful interesting questions and that one just got the lion's share of attention yes and then sort of it slowly turned that that she then sort of attacked me and said you know there she is the perky one i think she said that on oprah you know and <laughs> Uh, she and said I that just, in her subdued way. Yeah, and I and and that they were gotcha questions and unfair. And now I think she's recently turned around and said that those were fair questions. Uh, have you interviewed Donald Trump? You know, I haven't. I've been trying to, and I'm hoping that I will have an opportunity to sit down with him. Um, I now, think I think a lot of people running for president are of a generation they don't 
quite understand digital platforms. You're as at well. Yahoo now. And we yeah. should say that. You're yeah, I'm at Yahoo. Yahoo. I'm the global news anchor, which is kind of an embarrassing title. John says, my husband says, why aren't you just the intergalactic news anchor? Yeah, when are you going to get up to that? Because there are people know. on Pluto. I'm and trying. Other I'm really, really trying to wanna, talk to wanna catch I'm talking your to show. Elon. Elon Musk about that and see if I can be the first one on that rocket ship. But um, so I have been trying to to get an interview with Mr. Trump. I think um, he's quite accustomed to television as the primary outlet. Apparently so. And uh, and television has grown very accustomed to him. Mm-hmm. And um, so too much I'm so, so you think? Uh, I'm not so much now, but initially I thought there was that period of time where it was. Wall-to-wall coverage, 90 minutes of his rallies with no, very little editorial context. Um, and um, I thought there were, it was very difficult to ask him challenging questions on the phone because he was like a bulldozer. Would you do an interview with him on the phone? Um, I think I would have really fought against that. And if I had, I would have said, you get five minutes and so does every other candidate. Because there just seemed to be something patently unfair. He knew how to work the system, and the system was more than happy to have him work it. And so I think, I, I think my problem was it just. Now I don't know because I wasn't I wasn't in those booking meetings. So maybe the other candidates were saying no, but they shouldn't have. They should have said yes. I'm going to come in. No, I'm but that's what you hear. That's what you hear from the well, folks who do the booking. That that's what you hear. You I don't to... know how hard they tried. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was. If it was. Um, you don't think George Pataki would have been as big a draw? <laughs> I don't know if it was positioned in such a way to say we're talking to Donald Trump for seven minutes on the phone tomorrow. We'd like to give you an opportunity to express your point of view. And I do think that there was that window of time where either because of his railroading or because there was a lack of willingness to ask really tough questions for fear of cutting off access, which, by the way, happens all the time. You know, why do an interview with somebody who's going to ask me hard questions? I mean, when you have so many choices, mm-hmm. you don't, and you don't have to, there is no rite of passage a la right. Tim Russert. It's like... Well, we don't have to afflict the comfortable because um, we want them to stay comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So, do you do you, how how much you blame the news? I don't know. Blame is the right word. I think there were they were certainly cases of enabling the Trump candidacy, but I think you also have to appreciate and realize. There's this huge groundswell behind him, too, and those people can't be ignored either. I think one of the things that wasn't done as well was really examining the forces at work that were making him rise to the top and making his candidacy much more viable than people predicted. And I think if we'd spend a little more time every election, we say this in the media, less horse race and more context, more depth, more information, more issues. Right. Let me. I just before we uh, before we leave. I just. I can't believe this went so fast. I would fast. be under. I would be <laughs> remiss if I didn't mention you. You just were the executive producer of a really impactful documentary called Under the Gun about this whole issue of guns in America. Um, first of all, tell people where they can see it. Well, it's and on secondly, Ep- talk talk about what you learned from it. Yeah, it's on Epix, uh, which is uh, a cable channel, a streaming service that has some really great content and a lot of socially conscious documentaries. They are doing one on income inequality with Common and Shonda Rhimes. They did one on women in uh, in, in director and and high level movie roles behind the scenes called the Four um, Percent. So. I, I really respect and appreciate that they're embracing this kind of work, which can be a hard sell. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after uh, May 30th, it's going to be VOD on Apple and Amazon. Okay. And it was two years in the wait- making, and basically it examined the issue of gun violence. It put aside the notion, it said everyone has a Second Amendment right to buy and own guns in, you know, in this country. But how can we reduce the level of violence? How can we reduce the And you talk to everybody. You talk people. to people across the spectrum. You talk to gun owners. Yeah. You talk to 
uh, I know you were, spent some time in Chicago where there's been a terrible yes. gun violence issue. Did you leave? It, we don't. This is a very impactful piece. I, I can't urge people to enough to see it. Uh, did you leave it? more or less hopeful that we might be able to do something about this problem? I, I mean, I did. I think the uh, people who feel so passionately about gun rights are such a cohesive and loud um, or, you know, organized group um, whose voices are just out there constantly. Um, but what I am seeing is... You saw in states... Movements. Yes, uh, 18 states have passed ballot initiatives for universal background checks. Two more, Maine and Nevada, are looking at those in November. The things that I learned is 74% of NRA members favor universal background checks. The NRA only represents 5% of gun owners in this country. There's a huge silent majority of gun owners who really want to have reasonable measures in place to try to do everything they can to keep guns out of the hands of wrong of the wrong people. Um, you know, you're never going to eliminate, eradicate gun violence and, and the deaths and carnage r- resulting from that. But you can possibly, according to our experts, reduce it significantly. When you think that 2.4 million guns that should not have been sold have not been sold since the Brady bill was passed. You know, I think that there, I, one of the things I learned is that the tentacles of the gun lobby reach all different areas that you would never imagine. For example, the ATF doesn't have computerized records. So when they have to trace a gun that was used in the commission of a crime, they have to go through by boxes design. and boxes. By and, design. Right, because of legislation mm-hmm. that was put in place by the gun lobby. The CDC can't study gun right. violence deaths as a public health issue. You know, when you have you know, toddlers claims 30 getting, some odd thousand and when you have toddlers getting here. a hold of guns, you know, they, they so in other words, they they need the data to figure out well what can be put in place to prevent these deaths or reduce these deaths. But the gun lobby, along you know, it was the CDC was defunded. There was language that said they yes. couldn't study anything that had anything to do with gun control. Right. So I think. It's sort of these kind of insidious things that have been going on that have kept Americans from really understanding the issue and, you know, having a really rational conversation. I'm optimistic that's still possible. You see this grassroots movement, whether it's Moms Demand Action with chapters in all 50 states, the ballot initiatives you just mentioned, organizations like Everytown. Americans for Responsible Solutions, like Gabby Giffords and Mark Kelly's organization, they're all kind of saying, you know what? There's power in numbers when it comes to people who don't want to take your guns away and think that, you know, don't want to challenge the Second Amendment at all. Mark Kelly has a ton of guns. But but what can we do as a country to decrease this level of senseless violence? Well, I think if people see your documentary, that will contribute to a greater understanding of uh, the barriers and the possibilities. I hope so. I hope, you know, we just wanted to, I, I, I approach this with a very simple question. Why? Why after Sandy Hook Elementary were our elected leaders when 90% of the public favor universal background checks? Yes. Why couldn't the government do anything about it? Yeah. And what are the forces that are at work that are obstructing us from getting something accomplished and what is the psyche and the mentality of gun owners who really don't want to see any measures put in place because of the whole slippery slope, the mm-hmm. registry equals confiscation? And that is a very kind of basic, fundamental American right in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, making sure that people do have the the ability to protect themselves. Right. I uh, I thank you for shining a light on that issue and for all the work you continue to do to bring serious issues to people's attention. Well, documentaries are in many ways, I've said this in the last couple of weeks, are kind of a, a new form of journalism. You know, you used to have white papers, you have to have, used to have Edward R. Murrow doing Harvest of Shame and used to right. really have these, the change these, the, these change, deep dives. Change the public debate. 
podcasts are a new form of communication too. No, but, I think but, so too. But this one has to come to an end. Oh, really? That's it. <laughs> but uh, this it's, was so fun. It's, do I do I? Well, do you're I talk starting a podcast much? in June, so mm-hmm. uh, you'll you'll be able to. I'm do really it. excited about it because, you know, it is. I think a friend of mine said this is the the one place where people will will have the patience to listen to an in-depth conversation yeah, about something. Why question. is that, you think? Because you're a self-selecting audience. They download it. People listen to it in, in various, when they're working out, when they're driving, and so on. But uh, Are listen, you enjoying doing it? I love it. I love it. Well, you're I, pretty good at it. Uh, I, 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 I told like, David I thought we should do a thing, or he should do a thing, on every podcast called Turning the Tables and Letting the Guests Ask Him Five Questions. Okay, folks, it's been great. Thank you, Katie Couric. <laughs> we appreciate being with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.